The title of my sermon is Worship Matters. Worship Matters. Here's the big idea, and this is from the passage. I'm going to talk about right worship as opposed to wrong worship. Um, Right worship must be guided by God's word. We'll talk about something later called the regulative principle. I think it'll be helpful. But right worship must be guided by God's word, built on his grace and aimed at his glory. One more time. Right worship must be guided by God's word, built on his grace and aimed at his glory. Um, When I was in Washington... There was a church in our area, a big church, that, and I want to be careful here, I never want to be overly critical, that's not my intention, but there was a church in the area that would do things pretty regularly, I think for shock value. Um, For instance, the pastor on a Sunday sat on stage, brought in a tattoo artist, and got a tattoo, and that was kind of his sermon. He's just kind of talking as he's getting a tattoo, and I thought, that's interesting. Um, he preached a series through, like, well-known popular movies, um, and that was kind of his text. And again, I, I, I'm not, know my heart here, I, I never want to be overly critical. That's not what I'm saying. But when I heard of this church, and I heard what they were doing, I just kept saying, why? Why? And here's the question and on it, this breaks my heart. The question that kept coming to my mind was, isn't the word enough? Isn't, isn't the, like, when did the word not become enough that we have to dress it up? I don't understand. Isn't the word enough? And so I, I want to begin by reminding us two passages that I think you'll know well, but what we learn in this passage, these two passages, one from Romans, one from Second uh, Timothy, what we read here, th- this must ground and fill out our ministry, our worship as a church. And I think all of you would say amen to this. So the first one I thought of was Romans 1.16. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel, it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We preach the gospel. We sing about the gospel. We pray about the gospel. We gather for the gospel, the good news. Amen? And then, of course, we're all familiar, maybe not all, but many of us with 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And again, isn't the word enough? Isn't it? I'm not, you know, I almost feel bad. You know, you guys don't even know what this church is. I mean, it could be anywhere in Washington, but they did these types of things often. Again, I, I just kept asking, isn't the word enough? Well, enough of that. Context is everything here. So, where did we start in Exodus 20? The 10 what? 10 commandments. Okay, so remember that. And now we're in Exodus 20 still, but we're at the end of the chapter. So Exodus 20, 1 to 21, is a call to worship. It's a call to worship. We were made to worship, namely 
to fear God, which as we discovered last week, amounts to loving God and obeying God. What we see in Exodus 21 to 21, remember this, this, this grounds our worship. What do we see in Exodus 21 to 21? The Lord rescues. He rescues his people. Amen? Isn't that reason enough to worship him? So the Lord graciously rescued Israel. They were captives in Egypt. God promised to do it. He did it. But not only did he rescue them, he gave them his what? He gave them his word, by which he means to rule over his rescued people. So this God graciously rescues his people, and then instead of just saying, okay, hey, good luck, best of luck to you, I want to rule over you. I want to be your king. I'm going to give you my word so that you can come under it and I can rule over you. Wow. And if that's not enough, he then makes himself known. He reveals himself to them. This God is seen. He rescues. He gives his word. He reveals himself. (laughs) Are you kidding me? The Lord must be worshipped. But how? And friends, the how matters, doesn't it? Do we just kind of make this up as we go? Is that okay? Can we just kind of shoot from the hip when we gather and, and do what we feel like doing? Hopefully all of us would say resoundingly, no. What must inform our worship? The Word of God. The Word of God. So in Exodus 22, which is where our passage this morning begins, in what follows, so from, from today on, really the, the rest of Exodus, we're going to see that how we worship how we worship matters. If Exodus 21 to 21 is the call to worship because God saves, God gives his word, God reveals himself, we should worship him. Amen? But the follow-up question is, but how? How do we do it? And the how matters. Why does it matter, do you think? Because God is worthy. He's holy. And it matters how we approach him. So just as you're going to see kind of a mirror relationship between Exodus 20, 1 to 21, and what follows, 22 and onward. Just as the first half of the Ten Commandments deal with the vertical, what does that mean? Mankind in his or her relationship with God. That's the vertical. That's the first half of the Ten Commandments. And the second half deals with the what? The horizontal. God has laws for how we are to relate to one another, right? Okay, so keep that in mind. What we're going to see in this next section is that God begins with the vertical once again before moving into laws that relate to how we are to deal with one another. But here's the point. The vertical comes first. The vertical is emphasized. The vertical is most important. Amen? How we relate to God is most important. So what we learn in our passage is that it matters how we worship the Lord. Worship matters. It matters. Again, he sets the terms. His word must inform our approach. Therefore, our worship must never be done cavalierly or haphazardly. We we don't just gather and say, hey, we're just going to figure this out. We're going to do what we want to do. No, we don't set the terms. He does. Amen? That is so important. The moment we forget that, and the moment we reject that, we're going to get ourselves into a whole lot of trouble. If we think we can just kind of gather, again, cavalierly, do what we want to do. Yes, we have freedom in the Lord. But this God is holy, and he's worthy, and therefore we must worship him according to his, his word. 
Okay, so that's really what this sermon's about. Um, three things that we learn about right worship as opposed to wrong worship in our passage. Number one, right worship, it must be holy. It must be set apart. It must be distinct. If our worship looks like the world, is it right or wrong? It's going to be wrong. Number two, right worship, it must acknowledge God's grace. For it is God's grace that brings us into the presence of God. It is God's grace that enables worship. There'd be no worship without God's grace. It's true. So it's got to acknowledge God's grace, right worship. If we gather thinking, hey, God, look what I've done, right? Look what I've done. I am worthy of you. No, we're not. Number three, it must seek God's glory. And that is the, that is the primary principle. Worship, if it is going to be right and biblical and true and good, should it seek our glory? No, it should seek whose glory? God's glory. All right, so what is the Lord establishing in verse 22? Let's start in verse 22. This will kind of set things up, and then we'll look at our first point, which is what? Right worship must be holy. Listen to verse 22 once again. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, Don't miss this. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Oh, you've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. The Lord is saying you've seen and you've heard. You've seen and you've heard. You've seen my glory, and you've heard my word. The Lord then speaks from this. He's going to draw a conclusion from this. The Lord is saying, you've seen my glory, you've heard my word. This is the basis for your worship of me, because you've seen my glory, and you've heard my word. Furthermore, heaven had come down. Heaven had come down. The the Lord, the one true Lord, the one who spoke existence into being, the one who revealed his power and glory through the plagues, who provided a substitute at Passover, he condescended, he'd come down to meet with people. What grace. Don't forget that. What grace. Now, here's the structure. Couched between two specific commands, commands related to Israel's worship, was a glorious promise. And we'll come back to the promise, but uh, this is in your notes. Let me turn this off. I told you guys there was a, a pastor in Washington that I served with that if you left your phone on, he was just going to call you because he, he thought it was funny. That's crazy to me. <laughs> I love this guy. I was like, man, come on, we're preaching the word here. But in case you guys get any ideas, I'm, I'm turning it off. The, the structure for this passage I, I provided for you in your notes. Verse 22, the Lord reveals himself. That's the first thing. The Lord reveals himself. Verses 23 to 24a, which just means the first half of 24, the Lord commands. The Lord reveals himself, the Lord commands. And then in verse 24b, the Lord promises. He promises. And then, verses 25 and 26, the Lord commands. Okay? That's our passage. Let's get into it. What are we to make of the specific Warnings. There are warnings in our passage. These commands are warnings, because if you break these commands, what's going to happen? Judgment. So number one, right worship must be holy. Holy. And I'll explain what that means. Um, Let me just read this again. 23 and 24, 25 and 26. 
You shall not, and these are, the, these are the commands, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Does this sound familiar? Oh, this is the first and second of the commandments, right? Don't worship anything besides God. Don't make any images of God. We've heard this before. And then he gets into verse 24, the place of worship, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Okay? And then we move down to 25. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And I'll explain what's happening there. Verse 26 is maybe the strangest. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. What is that talking about? We'll get there. Here's the takeaway, though. Worship the right object and worship the right way. So it matters who we worship and it matters how we worship. It's true. It matters who we worship. That's the first. But also, if, if we got that right, it matters how we worship the right object. The worth of the object being worshipped, if high, if highly valuable, right? And of course, we know there's only one object, one person worthy of worship, and that's the one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen? But, if the object is worthy, if the worth of the object being worshipped is high, it necessitates a high degree of caution and carefulness from the worshiper. Furthermore, they're needed, and you're wondering, why all these commands? We're, we're about to get into a lot of commands. There needed to be a clear distinction between the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, in Israel's past approach to God, and pagan worship. So I saw this when I lived in Africa. There was a gentleman. So the, the missionaries that were there said, hey, listen, you need to hire a cook. I thought, I can cook. No, 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 no. This, this gives someone a job. This blesses them. So you need to hire a cook. Okay, so I found a guy that was recommended. Sweet guy. Cooked for me, and then he had a stroke. So don't cook for me because, no. He got really sick. He had a stroke. And I went to go visit him in his home. And he was a believer. He claimed to be a follower of Jesus. But when I got to his home, I noticed he had these, like, bands on his arms. And I was asking, so, you know, what are, what's up with these bands? Oh, the, the witch doctor gave him those bands, and that, that's to ward off the sickness. And I thought, what? Witch doctor? That's paganism. What, what? It's syncretism. So a lot of these African Christians, and, and I wouldn't call them Christians, okay? That's paganism. They would try to combine elements from Christianity and pagan worship to try to cover all their bases. But don't we do that in the world today? I, I, so let me give you an example that hits closer to home. Churches that have bought into the prosperity gospel or the seeker-sensitive movement, where they want to take elements or aspects of our culture and try to marry them to Christianity, right? What our culture values entertainment, health and wealth, the American dream, and try to wed that to the gospel, does that work? What are you left with? It's not Christianity, it's something else. The Lord is warning his people against this. Don't do that. Your worship needs to be holy. It needs to be different. It needs to be set apart. 
It can't include elements of the world. Once the church begins to look like the world, the church then becomes superfluous, right? I mean, it's, it's no good. It's no good. So much of what the Lord forbids, because, you know, if, you, if you've read Leviticus, for example, you're going to find these laws that you're like, what, where did these come from? A lot of the things that the Lord forbids were commonplace in pagan worship. So God is saying, hey, listen, if you're going to worship me, it cannot look like the pagans. It needs to be different, set apart. It needs to be holy. First, there's the command against making idols of gold and silver. And again, this harkens back to the first two commandments. This is Exodus 23 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. And what's sad is this is going to be short-lived. In about, uh, what, where are we at, 20? Um, about 12 chapters, we're going to see this happen with Israel. And it's not going to be good. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Next, and, and this is interesting, there's the specific instructions related to the construction of altars. Now, altars were not new at this point. During the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, altars were constructed to recognize the Lord and his work, a, a place where God had made a grandiose promise, a, a place where God had provided, a place where God had rescued. They were to set up an altar as a way of remembering who God is and what he'd done. So, for example, Genesis 12, 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. What is that? That's a, that's a promise. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. An altar, I think all of us know this, an altar was a place of worship. It was a place of sacrifice. Altars served as a meeting place between God and mankind, a place where essentially heaven and earth met. Now, the altar mentioned in our passage was to be distinguished from the more permanent altar of bronze that would later be associated with the tabernacle. So this is different. There was, maybe you're asking the question, why now? We're not even to the tabernacle yet. Why, why the need for an altar now? Because once God's people have been rescued, what needs to start happening? Worship, right? So there's an immediate need to begin worshiping the Lord now. They've been rescued. They've been given his word. They've had the Lord revealed to them. And so what needs to happen? They need to begin worshiping. And yet, and, and this is what's interesting, what God called for was to be extremely simple. That's a bit counterintuitive because, well, hey, God's worthy. I mean, we need to go big, pull out all the stops. But again, God is calling for a very simple design. So according to verses 24 and 25, the altar was to be made of dirt. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Or stone, but it can't be stone that was cut using tools. It just gather some rocks together, gather some stone together, and that's the altar. Why the simplicity? This is going to make sense. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Holiness and idolatry. Holiness. So again, why the simple design? Why the simplicity and the construction of the altars? Holiness and idolatry. This is from Doug Stewart. He was a professor of mine 
leading Exodus scholar, which is kind of a funny title. Not leading Bible scholar, but more specific, leading Exodus scholar. And this is what he said. He says, the insistence on a simple, even primitive altar relates to two factors, holiness and idolatry. He goes on to say, holiness is belonging to God. The altar must be his and his alone. Therefore, the altar could not be something of which humans could take ownership because they shaped it and finished it with the same sort of tools they might use for any mundane masonry project. Likewise, and this is good, likewise, it must not be fancy enough to become like or to function as an idol. The altar must be of the minimal sort of construction that would make it functional without becoming an object of veneration in itself, something that in the mind of the worshiper might somehow rival or substitute God. And then we have the instructions in verse 26. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And again, I, I think it's okay to say, what? Because we're not of this culture, right? And anybody grew up in the ancient Near East 4,000 years ago? I didn't think so. So what's going on here? I'm not trying to be indelicate here. In ancient times, most people did not wear underwear. What's called a, what? Undergarment. That's probably a better word. And so, high steps, if you're walking up high steps with no undergarments, there was the possibility of exposing oneself. Now, why is that a big deal? Here's why. Here's why. This will be helpful. Ritual nakedness was common in pagan worship in the ancient Near East, and who was Israel not to resemble in their worship? The pagans, the nations. They need to be what? Holy, which means set apart or distinct. Israel was not to worship like the world around them. That is the reason for this command. The Lord was concerned with the purity of his people, and especially purity in the context of worship. So, again, let's just summarize. Israel's worship must be unique, different, set apart, holy. It must not resemble the pagan nations and their approach to worship. Otherwise, there would be the great temptation to seek to be just like the nations. And that's what should it happen. But that's what's happening in so many churches today, right? You walk into the church, and what you hear and what you see resembles the world and not the word, and that's a massive problem. Israel was called to be different. Church, we're called to be what? We're called to be different. And, and here's, here's the kicker. I mean, this grounds everything. Furthermore, it wasn't up to them, it wasn't up to Israel to determine how to worship. I mean, how arrogant. Hey, God, you know what? You're the rescuer, you're the revealer, you're the word giver, but let us figure out how to do this. No! God calls the shots because God is sovereign. So they were to follow the Lord's careful instruction. They were to come under his word, and we must do the same. Amen? Why this command for Israel's worship to be simple and pure, holy? It was to prevent distraction. I mean, woe unto us if 
our gathering becomes a show. It becomes entertainment. That's a distraction. That's taking our attention away from the one who alone is worthy of our attention. Who is who? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So worship must be about the Lord. This is why we must never fall prey to the temptation to make our worship a show. Now, what else does our text teach us about worship? Number two, and this is so good, right? Worship must acknowledge God's grace. For it is his grace that makes worship even possible. Amen? I mean, his rescue is grace. His gift of the word is grace. The fact that he makes himself known climatically through the incarnation, God becoming man, is what? It's grace. So worship, if we're going to do worship right, it must acknowledge God's what? His grace. Now this is going to be helpful. With the instruction of an altar and the mention of sacrifices, because again, what happened on an altar? Animals were sacrificed. Here we begin to see God's gracious provision in worship, namely the provision of a substitute. Ooh, let's go. I love that language, don't you? A substitute. What we need to remember is that worship is for God and worship is from God. He not only demands it, and rightfully so, but he provides it, namely a way for it to happen. That's grace. We could not worship without the Lord's grace. Here we see the Lord's heart, namely his desire for peace and fellowship with his people. God's provision of an atoning sacrifice revealed his amazing grace. As Philip Ryken notes, both the burnt offering and the fellowship offering were for sinners in need of salvation. Now, I want to talk about these two offerings. First, the burnt offering. This is cool. And and maybe you're familiar with this history, but if not, this is pretty interesting. So what took place during the sacrifice of burnt offerings? To begin, I'm going to try to give you some imagery here. I want you to see this. My my son Clark, when I read to him, he's like, Daddy, I see it. Everything you're reading, I see it in my head. So I hope you kind of catch what's happening here. You see it in your mind unfolding. So imagine the worshiper places his hands on the head of the animal to be sacrificed. Okay, so it's very, I mean, this is tangible. I mean, they're touching the animal. This is for the burnt offering, by the way. And and again, there was no magical transference. This was symbolic identification. What it showed was that the animal being sacrificed was, in fact, being sacrificed in place of the worshiper. The worshiper was a sinner deserving of death, and yet the animal stood in his or her place. In order for a sinner to come into the presence of a holy God, there had to be what? There had to be a substitute. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be death. And God graciously, he graciously accepted this offering as atonement for sin. It gets pretty graphic now. After the animal's throat was slit, the blood would be sprinkled against the side of the altar, and then they would take the whole animal, place it on the altar, and burn it completely with the smoke rising to the Lord. 
Now, what of the peace or fellowship offering mentioned? Because we have two types of sacrifices or offerings mentioned. Now, this was different. The peace or fellowship offering was different. Here we see the purpose of atonement. And if you want to know what atonement means, at one meant. Through the provision of sacrifice, there can be at one meant with God. We can be what? United to God. We can have fellowship with God. It's just like the word justified. Who's ever had that word explained? Justified is God's verbal declaration that the sinner who trusts in Jesus is no longer what? No longer guilty. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. The Father sees Christ, his righteousness applied to you if you've trusted in him. So it's just as if I'd never sinned. The substitute, the sacrifice, provides at-one-ment, atonement with God. Through the sacrifice, through the substitute, sinners can have at-one-ment with God. They can have fellowship with God. Amen? All right, maybe I took too much time there, but I'm not going to apologize for that. That's important. One brother says, these offerings, again, this is the peace or fellowship offering, were given on special occasions to give thanks to God and they symbolized the fellowship one had with God. It, it also dealt with sin, but it had a different emphasis. In recognition of God's reconciliation with people, the offering was not consumed with fire, so they did what with it? They ate. One of my favorite things to do, they, they ate it in the presence of God. This particular meal stressed and emphasized peace between God and man. Listen, here's what I want you to get, us to get. The people of Israel were recipients of God's grace. Let me summarize. First, what did, they, what did God do first? He rescued them, right? He rescued them from slavery because they deserved it? No, because of his what? His, well, yes, his promise, good. But his grace, right? In Leviticus, God says, hey, I, I didn't rescue you because you were good, right? It's because of my grace, Next, if that wasn't enough, he gave them his what? His, his law, his word. Next, as we saw last week, he provided them with a mediator, Moses. And finally, he provided them with a substitute through sacrifice to atone for their sins. Now, why a substitute? What did the Lord know? He knew his people would break his law. What grace? And so what did he give them? A substitute. Now, before moving on to our final point, a quick biblical theology of atonement through substitution. You could even call this salvation through substitution. Is this a theme in Scripture? Does this happen time and time again? You know, when you do biblical theology, you're tracing a major theme from Genesis to Revelation, but what you're doing is you're watching how this theme builds like a snowball. It gets bigger, it builds momentum until it reaches its climax, its crescendo, which is, who is? Jesus, right? It's all Jesus. Amen? This beautiful theme of atonement, at-one-ment, through substitution, points to who? Points to Christ. So let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is a, a sad day. It's the second worst day in the history of the world. The worst day would be the death of the innocent Son of God, which is also our best day. Isn't that funny? But the, worst, the second worst day in the history of the world is what? The fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. 
And you might think, that's it. They're done. But what do we see in Genesis 3? Yes, there's the promise, what theologians call the proto-evangelium, which means in Latin, the first gospel, the seed of the woman is going to crush, woke you up, the head of the serpent. But we also see skins, clothing provided for Adam and Eve. And in order for that to happen, what had to happen? Animals had to be slaughtered, killed. So they're clothed with animal skins. A sacrifice was made for their sin. And then we get to Genesis 22. And again, this is tough, man. God tells Abraham, listen, I want you to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. This is the son of promise. And they go up to the mountain. The Lord tests Abraham's faith, his faithfulness. He believed that even if he died, he could raise him again. He had resurrection faith. But as he raises the knife, what happens? Substitution. The Lord provides a ram in place of Isaac. And then we get to Exodus 12, which we've already covered, but this is the tenth and final plague. The death of the firstborn son. But the Lord tells his people, slaughter an animal, a lamb without blemish, take the blood, cover the doorpost, and the destroying angel, the wrath of God, will pass over. What do we call that? A substitution. The animal died, so the firstborn son would not. And then, of course, you read Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah 53 speaks of one, the suffering servant who would be pierced and crushed for us in our place as our substitution so that we could have peace with God. And then we keep going, and we finally get to the New Testament, and we see the Gospels, and we see Jesus being declared by John the Baptist, behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our ultimate substitute. Salvation through substitution, and this for God's glory, so that we might be in awe of his grace and goodness. Amen? All right, we're almost done. Finally, we have the overarching goal of worship. What was the first thing? Worship must be, if it's right, must be holy. Number two, it must acknowledge what? God's grace. And number three, right worship must seek whose glory? God's glory. Let's go back to verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. The Lord begins by establishing his initiative. The Lord has spoken to his people, and in speaking, he has graciously given them his word, his law. I want to read that with Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So taken together, the Lord is saying, Israel, I've rescued you, and I've given you my what? My word. The Lord begins our section by highlighting his character and glory, by focusing Israel's attention on him, the reason and goal for their worship. And then we have the promise. The promise in our passage in verse 24b. This is so good. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Okay, so this appears to be a promise of future intervention future glory appearances, future worship, and not just at Mount Sinai, but at other places as well. Now, the Lord would typically call for an altar to be built in a place of mighty provision, mighty rescue, a place of revelation, a place of divine 
visitation. The point. Now, what's the point of these altars? Here it is. The point of these places of worship was for the Lord's name to be remembered. Everybody say remembered. To be remembered. It was a place, it was an occasion to remember who the Lord was and what he'd done. That's worship. Why do we gather, church? We gather to remember who he is and what he's done. Why are we here? Look around. Why are we here? We're here to worship. And worship is remembering who the Lord is and what he's done. A major theme throughout the book of Exodus is that the Lord will cause his name to be what? To be remembered through his outstretched arm. His mighty works. We further have the promise of presence. And and the Lord says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. This is everything the Lord promised to meet with his people. Again, what grace! The purpose of the Lord's presence was to produce awe and wonder in his people. And as we saw last week, this is for the purpose of fending off what? What does fear do? Fear of the Lord or right fear of the Lord? It fends off what? Sin. Good. Because when we are turned to the Lord in awe of his wonder and glory, we are turned away from the world. I mean, what are we doing? When we sing, are we singing about the world? Are we rejoicing in our sin? No. When we gather to hear the word and to sing the word and to pray the word, we are directing our attention to Christ and who he is and what he's done. That's the purpose of worship, to glorify him. But as we do that, we are turning away from the world and turning to the Lord. Amen? What was Israel responding to in their worship? God's glorious presence. God's glorious rescue. God's glorious word. When we gather to worship, what are we responding to? God's glorious presence. God's glorious rescue. God's glorious word. Our last big question, and this is going to be rapid fire. Are you ready? How does our passage point to Christ in the gospel? Three things here, okay? Three things. Number one, Christ is our substitute in worship. Who makes worship of the one true God possible? Jesus, who is our what? Without his substitutionary atoning work, could we gather together and worship the Lord? No. In order for us, sinners, all of us, to be brought near to God, we must have our sin covered, taken care of. Do you remember the definition I gave for the gospel? Christ in our place, by his grace, to bring us into his space. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice, the sacrifice to eternally satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain for the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. For us, he is our substitute. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Meaning what? The one who would take the wrath of God for us 
in our place as our what? Our substitute. And then, of course, Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, which he's done, which means the cross worked. Amen? It worked. The resurrection and the ascension is the ultimate vindication of the cross. The cross worked because Christ is seated on high. Amen? Number two, Christ is our place of worship. Do we have to go somewhere to worship? Do we have to travel thousands of miles annually to worship? No. No, because Christ is our place. Jesus is where heaven and earth met. The function of the temple has been fulfilled in Christ. What happened at the temple, the tabernacle? That was where sin was atoned for. Who atoned for our sin? Christ. That was where heaven and earth met. Well, that happens in Jesus. Who, who wants to be with Lord? Who wants to get right with God? Trust in who? Trust in Jesus. Christ is our place of worship. John 1.14 and the word became flesh, in the Greek says, and tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love John 2, 19-21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Everybody's like, what? Come on, man. It took our whole lifetime for this place to be built. You can do it in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Number three, Christ is our goal for worship. So again, Christ is our substitute in worship. Christ is our place of worship. Number three, Christ is our goal for worship, meaning we gather for his glory. We gather to remember his name and his work. Second Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, I told you we'd talk about, and I want to end here, the regulative principle. The who to what? Who's ever heard of the regulative principle? Maybe a handful. Here's what it states, and this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will. Now, what does that mean? What this means is that God, in his word, sets the terms for how we are to approach him in worship. Our worship must be informed by God's word. And the church said, amen. In order for our worship to be holy, and in order for our worship to acknowledge God's grace, and in order for our worship to seek his glory, it must be guided by his word. This is what Paul was getting at in his first letter to Timothy. I love this passage. This is 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says to Tim, I hope to come to you soon. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, here's the purpose, if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. According to Paul, it matters how we worship 
it matters how we gather as God's people. Amen? And Paul, who was inspired by the Spirit, sent by the risen Christ, gave instruction for how to do that biblically and in a way that honored the Lord. And we better acknowledge that instruction and come under it. Amen? If we're not, what are we doing? What are we doing? Seriously. Why does it matter how we worship? Why can't we set the terms? I know we want to at times, right? I'm sure we do. We're sinners. Because Jesus is worthy. Because Jesus is worthy. Because Jesus is holy. And because Jesus is glorious. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation, for rescue from sin, in the eternal wrath of God you and I deserve. There is no one but Jesus that can save your soul from eternal hell, eternal death, eternal punishment. He is a good Savior. Amen? We've talked a lot about grace. What is grace? What is, grace is a gift. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And what do, we, what do we not deserve? We don't deserve forgiveness. We're sinners. But in Christ, we get it, and we get it forever. Amen? Do you know Jesus? If not, trust in him. Ask him to forgive you. Get off the throne. Stop trying to live your life without him as king. You're a miserable king. I'm a terrible king. But Jesus is the perfect king who lived and died and rose again to save sinners like us. Why is this principle so helpful, this regulative principle? Let me answer that question, and then I'm going to pray. Because we don't know best. <laughs> Can we be humble enough to say that? Why do we need help in how we worship? Because we don't know best. We are glory stealers. We'll, we'll make this thing about us, won't we? If left to our own devices, without this, we will make this about us and not the Lord. And that's why we need this to inform our gathering. Amen? Lord, help us. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree that we need the Lord's guidance and wisdom? We need his help in how we worship him. Aren't you thankful that he gives it to us by his spirit through his word? Again, he is worthy. Um... Max and Katie, guys, just had a baby, and when they came in this morning, I saw Papa holding Nathan. I said, man, you're in your element, right? But I, I would bet, and this is, I'm going to close with this, I would bet the first time you guys gave Nathan to someone else, even grandparents, weren't there instructions, right? I mean, he needs to not have certain things, but he can't have, man, we were like crazy with Clark. Haley and I had a list right? It, why, why, why do parents do that? Even if it's grandparents, you know, it's that first night away. Hey, listen, mom, I love you. I know I'm still here, so you did it right. You know, I'm still kicking. But listen, this is his schedule. Grandparents love that. Schedule, come on, man. But, but why? Why do, why do parents act that way? Because that life is so precious and so worthy and so loved. And why do the caregivers, the grandparents, listen? Because there's no one more qualified to give those instructions than the parents. Amen? Why do we gather? Because Jesus is worthy. Why do we need his word to show us how to gather? Because there's no one more qualified to show us than the Lord. Amen?
Aren't you thankful for this book? Aren't you thankful for our king? Aren't you thankful that the only reason we're here is because Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, laid down his life for us? I, I mean, come on now. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the perfect life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And I pray that as your blood-bought people, as a people that have been covered, forgiven, made at one with you through Jesus, that we would gather according to your word. That when we gather as a church, Father, I pray that we would not resemble the world, but resemble your word. I pray that our gathering would be holy, that when we gather, we'd acknowledge your grace, and that the goal of our gathering, your people, your church, would be your glory in all things. And all God's people said, in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, Amen. Amen.